it's April Justine with Bloods by Design, and welcome to episode two of Strictly Shorties. I'm super excited to bring this to you, and if you are new here, thank you for listening in. I really appreciate it, and if you are a return person, <laughs> thank you also. Um, this, like I said before, is this project that's been in my head, and I'm so glad to be able to share this with you guys and get the information of the species about the species that we love out into the world. Very excited for that. Uh, so today we are going to talk husbandry basics and, you know, husbandry is how we keep them, uh, caging size and temperatures, humidity, all that type of stuff. So we're going to get into the nitty gritty details of that. And I thought who better to have on than Karen Norris herself, because every time in the blood Python group, people ask about the husbandry and how to keep them and caging size, etc. We always link to this write-up that Kara did. So I feel it's very appropriate to have Kara come on and explain exactly what she does, what she's learned, uh, the best things for the species herself. Kara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, April. Absolutely. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your history with Bloods and Short Tails and how long you've been working with them? You bet. So I have been keeping Blood and Short Tail Pythons for kind of scared to say this, 22 years now. Uh, got my first one back in 2000 and uh, just have really over the years kind of refined and focused my collection to the point where now that's all I keep. And um, it's just, it's been a lot of fun. They're amazing snakes and just kind of an ongoing obsession. So it's, uh, it's been a while. Yeah, I understand how the obsession goes. <laughs> and I also understand like really toning down the, the species that you keep. How many species did you keep, I guess, in your beginning stages of, oh, of keeping? All of them. Everything. <laughs> everything. <laughs> right. No, I, I was I was really a boa gal to start with and, and did a lot of locality boa stuff. Kept a bunch of colubrids, kept a bunch of Australian pythons, uh, just all sorts of, of different stuff. And then, of course, I worked at Nerd for nearly 10 years and so had a lot of exposure to, to different animals and, and species there. So um, have just kept numerous things over the years and keep coming back to the bloods and shorties just because they are, I guess they have my heart. They're so much fun and, uh, there's so much left to learn about them and, and to do with them that it's, it's kind of hard to, to get away and shift that focus. Yep, absolutely. Um, so with this podcast, we kind of cut out the BS and get straight to the subject. So let's hop in and get straight down to husbandry. Um, we're going to go over kind of what are good qualities, uh, qualities that a good enclosure has. And uh, yeah, let's just hop right into it. So let's start with caging, Kara. What do you recommend for caging? So what I recommend for caging is going to be what is easy for the keeper to maintain that is also um, sufficient for meeting the snake's needs. You know, and when I say sufficient, I don't just mean baseline bare minimum. Uh, what, mm -hmm. you know, what is going to actively promote the kind of in enclosure and environment that they need. Uh, what'll make it easy to maintain temperatures, what'll make it easy to facilitate the levels of humidity, what makes the snake feel secure, what allows them to thrive. And, um, and really that varies, I think, from person to person and collection to collection based on, you know, do you have a dedicated snake room? Are you keeping the snake in a custom-built enclosure in your bedroom? You know, those are mm -hmm. all very specific considerations that I think any keeper needs to to be willing to approach and, and think about before committing to, to keeping any animal. And so some general guidelines that I like, you know, make sure that it has adequate airflow so that air is not getting stagnant. Um, make sure that it's obviously secure. The snake can't escape, that it will allow for creation and stabilization of correct temperatures and that it's aesthetically pleasing and easy to maintain because if a snake is out of sight, out of mind, it's really easy for it to fall off keeper's radar if they have other things going on in life and, and get distracted. Right. And I think that, you know, you should always be able to go in and walk into your snake room and, and see and enjoy your snakes and uh, make it easy to access them. So those are some, some really basic rule of rules of thumb that I think are important to keep in mind. And I've, I've noted for myself with different species that I've kept too, if the cage is too hard to clean, it has me less motivated to do it. And so I make it simple in that sense. So that way it's easy to clean and I'm able to quickly and easily keep up with, you know, the sanitization of my caging. Absolutely. Absolutely. Maintenance is really important. You know, these snakes are, are high output. 
in terms of mm -hmm. uh, the urates that they pass. We know that they do pass large volumes of, of liquid urine, and that can really overwhelm a small enclosure, especially the, the smaller enclosures that keepers tend to use to make these snakes feel more secure. And so it's very much a balancing act, and, and you need to be in there daily, you know, doing what I call the whiff test. Does everything smell <laughs> fresh and clean and, and healthy? You know, if not, if it smells stale yeah. or, or if there are any offensive odors, that snake is sitting there laying in that with no place to, to escape. And so that has to be remedied and rectified immediately. And uh, as low maintenance as, as people like to claim blood pythons are, they're really not. They're an active maintenance species. And you have to be in there and, and taking an active role every single day in their, in their husbandry to, to make sure that they're healthy and, and thriving. Yep, Absolutely. Um, so let's get with caging for hatchling, the smallest little baby that we have. What do you use for that and recommend for that? So, man, we've used everything over the years. I used to really like the six quart, um, I guess they were vision box, or not vision, um, iris boxes that you can get at the container store, like they're shoe boxes. And we use those in our baby racks for a long time. We've now upgraded to the Vision V18 tubs that are a little bit longer. They're, I want to say, 18 mm -hmm. inches by, what, 7 by 3 inches tall, 3 and a half inches tall. And as it turns out, you know, having that, that extra length in the tub is really beneficial. Um, I don't think that it's too, too big or too overwhelming, even for, for hatchling bloods and short tails. We've started all of our babies in those for the last, I don't know, six or eight years now, and, and they've really done well. And, uh, and so I like that size. I, I think it's also sufficient to give them a nice little thermal gradient. You know, I run my room at anywhere from 76 to 82 degrees, and then everybody gets a little warm spot at the back of the tub that ranges anywhere from 84 to 86 and even up to 88 for gravid females. So for little snakes, you know, they're getting, they're getting a hot spot of 84 to 86 degrees, and I see them using it. They'll eat, and they'll go sit on that warm spot, and then I'll see them move around and sit under a different part of their substrate to kind of thermoregulate off of it. And I think... The enclosure needs to be not so big that it's overwhelming, but big enough to give the snake viable options for, for where they want to set temperature-wise. Yeah, I, I'm using the the six quart right now, the, exactly what you spoke of. And it's enough room in there, honestly, for the water bowl and their hide. And that's really it. And so they're either in their hide or on top of their hide. And they grow out of that very, very quickly. Um, so noted, I'm like, okay, you know, next time I buy caging for hatchlings, I should probably just upgrade the link. Cause I agree that I don't think it'll be overwhelming to them. Cause it's only, you know, a couple inches of floor space extra, really. It's not anything crazy, crazy. Yeah. I haven't seen any adverse effects with it. We get a couple, um, each season that may not be the fastest to start eating. And in that case, if we need to, we'll move into a smaller enclosure, but for the most part, those V18 tubs work really, really well for these babies. Okay. And then at what point do you move them up and what do you move them up to? Oh, I, I will leave them in a V actually a V18 for oof, maybe the first four to six months. And then I'll use a V35 box, which is basically like two V18 side by side. Um, mm -hmm. I have racks that are, they're built to accommodate either. It's kind of a combo rack. And then from that, I'll go into an ARS 5540. And, uh, and then I go from that straight into their adult enclosure. So okay. I've done a lot of, of graduating up between tub sizes over the years. And I think the fewer moves, the better, which does mean leaving a snake in an enclosure until it's just borderline too big for it. Um, yeah. and then, and then making sure that you have that space and you're ready to move when it's like, okay, you, you need to move up. It's time for you to graduate. So, yeah, I, I basically do the same thing. I go from six to a 35 to the CB70 and from the CB70, once they're exploding out of that, they go into their adult yeah. tub or enclosure, whatever it might be. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I've only been using the, the 5540 size for I think, a season now. And I'm, I'm, the jury is out on whether or not I, I like that or not. We got rid of all of our CB70s. We got rid of kind of our, our in-between size enclosures. Mm -hmm. And we're just trying to, I think, figure out what's going to work the best for the space that we have. So it may be that in another year or two, I say, hmm, let's try something else and, and let's really optimize, you know, what, what's working here. But so far, uh, snakes are thriving, they're eating, they're doing really well going from one size to the next and nobody's getting overwhelmed. And those are always kind of key points that I look for. You know, do we see any major changes in attitude for that snake? Are they suddenly very defensive? Or are they suddenly very reclusive? If not, then I think we're on the right track. I was just about to ask you, how do you know if a snake is, you went ahead and answered that. Um, okay. So 
for adult sizes, uh, do you use tubs? Do you use cages? Do you use a mix of both? I use tubs. I like the the great big boa tubs from Vision. Uh, we've used the the VE one seventy five iris tubs in the past, but those racks were just they were too big and and didn't really work in our space once we moved. So I use the I, I think Vision now calls them the V one eighty, but they're known as the the boa tub. And I think the overall size is the outer dimensions are are like thirty three by forty or something like that. It's a big cumbersome tub, but the snakes do very very well on them. And I actually use those right now. It's smooth inside. It is very smooth inside and it slopes. So you end up losing a little bit of square footage on the floor space. But every blood python that I have kept in those has done really, really well. And uh, just seems like a a nice kind of in-between size without having to get into the giant uh, VE-175 tubs and, and try to manage all of that space. Yeah, right now I have a mix of both of those. And for... Just budget reasons, I am doing uh, the Christmas tree tub, which is the V175. Uh, those Christmas tree tubs, they're not smooth on the bottom, so pee will get stuck in that residue. It's a pain to clean in that, and they're just so bulky and cumbersome that it's it's just hard to move around. So because of price point, because getting the Vision Boa tubs either in a Vision rack or ARS rack is very pricey, but I personally recommend those. Yes. I, I really enjoy them. They're, uh, yeah. they're a solid tub. They work very well. Um, the snakes are happy in them. And, you know, yeah, they are they are spendy for a tub, but they're also very heavy duty. I'm not saying it's not impossible to, to drop one and crack a corner and I get squawked out if I do that. <laughs> it's <laughs> are expensive. Yes, I know, dear. Um, yeah, but it's it's just a, a great sturdy tub and a, and a perfect size for most bloods and, and short tails. I do have a few that, you know, are destined to go in some of the ARS, uh, I think it's the 9706 size that, you know, they just need that, that absolute bigger cage space. And, and I think mm-hmm. that with this, as large as, and, and as heavy as some of these snakes are and, and tend to be, we have to be willing to explore those alternate racks and alternate cage sizes for them and not just keep them crammed into, into smaller boxes. Agree. All right. So is there anything you want to add to caging or shall we move on to the next? I, I mean, I think that covers it. A lot of it is just, you know, keep it, keep it enjoyable for you and the snake, keep it easy to access and easy to maintain. All right. Um, with that, let's move on to substrates. What are the good ones to use, the bad ones to use and your preference specifically? There is no one perfect substrate for every snake and every keeper in every situation. And it's funny because yes. I feel like this topic gets asked a lot. What is the perfect substrate? There isn't one. There is no perfect substrate. Um, it really depends on what are you going to be accountable for keeping up with, what is affordable, and what is easy to maintain. Um, as we mentioned earlier, blood pythons pee a lot, a lot, a lot. And it gets messy, it gets stinky, it gets gross. And so spot cleaning is not really an effective way to maintain these animals. Um, At the same time, you need something that can absorb and manage large volumes of liquid and that can be easily disposed of and easily managed. And so for me in my situation, I really, really like Reptichip. Um, It's a chipped cocoa husk bedding. It provides ample humidity when you spray it down. It's wonderful for absorbing, absorbing and holding moisture and also absorbing and, and holding urine, which is, you know, one of those big things that, that we have to deal with with blood pythons. Um, I have a large garden, and so I compost mine. Oh, and, that's smart. Yes. <laughs> so for me, that's a, a feasible solution. For someone else who, you know, they have six blood pythons in an apartment, probably not the, the best situation for them. I don't mind going in daily, doing substrate changes if necessary, you know, just double-checking, going in and doing the whiff test. I will say post-COVID, I'm a lot more uh, sensitive to that. And even if I suspect that I'm smelling something, even if I'm, I'm not, I'm going to go ahead and change that substrate anyway, just because I don't have my sense of smell completely back yet. And so mm-hmm. that's been uh, just something, you know, that, that we have to deal with in this day and age of, of keeping snakes that we didn't have to before. So for me, like I said, in my situation, I really like the Reptichip. I like the cocoa beddings just because they, the snakes like to burrow in them. They hold up all the moisture, and then I can use them either to, to mulch with or to compost. Um, aside from that, cypress mulch is a good alternative if you like those particle substrates, if you like something that is more natural-looking. Otherwise, it's really hard to beat paper as a standby go-to substrate yeah. for these snakes, whether you use newspaper or craft paper or whatever type in there. It's 
immediately easy to see when it's been soiled. It's easy to change. It's easy to replace. It's easy to source. You know, keep it simple. And uh, I think those are good good choices to go with. So I'll go into detail about paper a little bit because I just bought one that I thought was what I normally use and it's not, which may make sense to some questions that I've seen before. So I use just the painter's paper that you would get at Home Depot or Lowe's. Uh, it comes in red and it comes in brown and it's thinner. There is a brown one that's really thick. Don't use that. Um, water will not like absorb into that paper and it'll mold incredibly fast. Uh, I just recently bought that one thinking it was my old one and it does not work. So don't use that. <laughs> I say no to that. So now you have um, something great to shred up and put in your shipping boxes. Right, exactly. Or I've been painting my house, so it's been perfect for that. Yeah. It's true intent. Nice. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and also I get I went on to Uline.com for the paper, and you can get uh, like a paper cutter, basically, that you can hang on the wall, or I just keep mine on the floor. But it'll fit those rolls of paper, and I just easily can rip the paper off, and it makes cutting. Instead of cutting each piece individually, I'm just ripping them off super fast. And it's now a game for me to see if I can estimate how big the cage is perfectly or not. It's kind of like my, my thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Pretty good at it at this point, I'll tell you that. Yep, you go um, and get your stack going and, and rip off a few pieces yep. and then exactly. go through and clean and absolutely make it as efficient as possible. And for the ones that don't have specific hides, I just use extra layering of paper for them to go into too. So it's very easy. Yes. Um, and cost effective and easy to get. So I definitely check some of the boxes. I know. Uh, yeah. A lot of people these days, like they'll fiddle around with things like Aspen or, or shredded pine and, and things along those lines. And, you know, with the bloods and short tails, I think it's really important to note that these snakes have a massive primary lung. It's approximately 60% the length of their body. And you want to stay away from anything that is too excessively dusty. And mm -hmm. when you start getting into, again, like, like the Aspen and, and some of those types of, of beddings, there's just a lot of dust. And, and I think it's very important to, to be aware of what we're exposing those snakes to and making smart choices. I know some people like paper pellets. Again, I have found those to, to break down and just be excessively dusty. Um, I know with cypress mulch, uh, there are definitely concerns about the way that that's harvested. And so do some research into the companies that you're buying from and, and see whether or not they're using ecologically sustainable methods. I didn't know that actually. So it's good to know. Um, okay. Uh, anything else for substrates? Um, I stick with what, what works and I, I stick with what I like. You know, um, I love seeing snakes burrow down into a thick bed of cocoa husk and just sticking their nose out because that tells me it's really cute. I'm <laughs> doing what a blood python does and, and I love mm -hmm. having blood pythons. So I think giving them that opportunity, even if it's maybe not the most cost effective option, um, I think that I'm investing in their overall well being and their overall you know, sense of, of wellness. And, and I just think there's a lot to be said for that. And I'll also do it if uh, an adult is uh, overly scared or defensive, I'll put them on the cocoa chips as well, because them burrowing and hiding gives them that extra sense of security and sometimes will calm them down. Absolutely. Or cocoa chips, like a big layer of paper over it. Oh, that's a happy snake. You know, if they can kind of burrow in and get their own little kind of hole dug out and then they have something sitting on top of them for that extra security, that also works very well with calming down the more tense and reactive animals. It's like, you can't see me. <laughs> All right. All right. So let's move on to heating. Um, and, and I'd like to kind of touch on what we kind of talked about when I talked with Keith on how we, we thought the heating should be for them previously and what we've learned to now be the ideal uh, and how we can create that in our uh, habitats at home. Absolutely. So do you want to jump into what you talked about with Keith or you want kind of how we do things here and then circle back? Let's do what I'll talk about Keith. So with Keith, um, when we first got them in, in the 80s and early 90s, we were keeping them very, very hot. And we're talking like ball python hot, like 92 degrees, um, as well as wet. And we'll get into the wet later. Uh, but we were keeping them very, very hot and found out that that uh, creates a very uh, not good attitude animal <laughs> with them being that hot. Uh, and then over the years, we have uh, learned differently. So this, Carrie, you can speak on what is truly ideal for them and what you do uh, over at your place. Yeah, absolutely. So I, there's a sweet spot with bloods and it's kind of that 78 to 82 range. Uh, I think for ambient background temperature in a room, that is really ideal. 
And that is where I find my snakes are, are not reactive. They are, again, comfortable, thriving, feeding well, reproducing, um, acting, engaging. Like they, they're not overly defensive. They're not overly uh, aggressive. It's just, again, kind of that, that sweet spot. So I like 78 to 82. Uh, I will let my room drop as, as low as 76. Um, sometimes in the summertime, it'll get as high as 84, you know, depending on I might have windows open or, or it's, you know, an especially warm day and, and things heat up before the, before the air kicks in. And, uh, that range I think really is, is sufficient, but I also do provide supplemental heat. All of my snakes from the time they are about three meals in. So that's, oh, almost six to eight weeks old, um, by the time they're that age, they are getting that hot spot of, of 84 to 86. And I have some snakes that, that show me they want to sit warmer and, and I will provide them up to, you know, 88 degrees sometimes for a hot spot. And it's, when I say a hot spot for like my adults, we're talking a, you know, 11 inch wide by 18 inch long piece of heat tape. It's not this giant, you know, roasting oven in one part of their enclosure. It's just a, a spot where they can thermoregulate, warm up, and you'll walk in and open a tub and see one you know, with maybe a, a loop of their body sitting on that warm spot and the rest of them is off of it. And, or sometimes you walk in and they've, they've moved away from it. But every single one of our snakes has that. They thrive with it. I know a lot of people like to do ambient only. Um, mm-hmm. I've done that in the past with good results, but I believe my snakes are more robust, more reactive, or I shouldn't say reactive, that's not the word, more engaging, more, um, I think, just kind of alert and overall seem in better condition when I do offer them that, that additional supplemental heat. Okay. So we have now what the good temperatures are and the good temperature ranges. How do we create that? What's the best type of heat source to, to make that happen? You know, again, I think that depends on, on where you live and how many snakes you're keeping and what is your setup like? If you have Mm -hmm. three blood pythons in your bedroom in, in individualized caging, then radiant heat panels and a combination of, of that plus heat tape all on thermostats may be the, the best option. I've got a big room full of blood pythons, so I have heating throughout the entire room, and then I use heat tape in, in the individual racks. And uh, it just really kind of depends on, on what's the situation and, and how can you fine-tune it and dial it in for your snakes so it is simple and consistent. Now, do you always use belly heat or do you use some back heat as well? I have used back heat in the past, or I should say side heat, when we use the big uh, VE-175 tubs that we no longer use. Right now, they all get mm-hmm. belly heat. Just It's simple and, it, and it's easy to provide in the type of racks that we use. I have not seen a particular difference between using side heat versus belly heat that I would necessarily say one is better over the other, as long as the snake has choices and they can go move on to that heat and they can move off of it. And, and they have ample room to thermoregulate as needed. Yeah. I use that in my hatchling rack. I use the side heat or back heat for me. And I found that in that small of a space, even a half a degree could, you know, create too much heat and they can't get away from it. So you have to be really careful about that specifically. Exactly. If that's, if that's the way you're going to go. I will say in the, in the V18 tubs for babies, I use belly heat. And, and that way, you know, it's down at one end of the tub. They have plenty of room to move away from it. And it's just a small strip of three-inch heat tape. And again, maybe 86 is the hottest that gets. Right. Um, people that use uh, overhead lights for heating, plus, minus, or neutral depending. I think you're <laughs> pissing your snake off at that point. <laughs> You've got the yeah. you know, big source of heat, dry it off the air overhead. And I, I've just never seen that being a positive situation. I'm, I'm sure that there are some people that do overhead lighting with like bioactive enclosures and some of these more naturalistic vivarium that do an excellent job. But too often that turns into, you know, we have the, the red heat bulb over a 10 or 15 gallon tank. And you know, that's just turning it into an oven for that snake. Right. So, and for me, it's really drying out the air. And yes. when I lived on the West coast, that was definitely an issue. Our outside humidity was like 20 to 30 if I'm lucky. Uh, so having extra heat lamps or even like the ceramic heat emitter, that is just drying out the air and not really conductive to the environment that we need for these animals. So yeah, definitely something to think about. Cause that's a question we see a lot, huh? 
<laughs> is everything that I am putting into this enclosure or into this environment making it easier or harder for me to create the ideal set of parameters that this animal needs? And that is that is how I'm always going in and engaging things. Is this making my job harder or is it making it easier for that snake to be comfortable, healthy, happy? You know, something we didn't touch on with caging itself Um you do tubs, which is plastic. Uh, what do you recommend for using a glass caging uh, or not recommend at all? You know, I think, it, I think it depends. Glass caging is something that we see a lot of new keepers use because it's cheap and yeah. Um Everybody I know is giving away, you know, come get this aquarium. It doesn't hold water or whatever. I mean, I've got a bunch in our garage when we used to have a bunch of vacuum <laughs> bottles and, and things like that. Um, they're cheap. They're easy. But a lot of the time we have newer keepers who maybe aren't as fine tuned in their husbandry practices and their understanding mm-hmm. of how to make an enclosure like that work. And so they're in there with kind of the bare bones, you know, you've got open glass on all four sides and, it, and it's this big open spacious feeling kind of cage that, that's basically freaking out the snake in it. And, and there's no real way to, to regulate the conditions in that, in that particular environment. I think that glass enclosures can work very, very well if the keeper who's using them has some experience and they're willing to do their homework and get in there and, and tweak things and set them up correctly. Um, mm-hmm. but, but maybe not so much for the novice who hasn't really gotten their feet wet with it yet. Right. Cause I see a lot with the Aspen bedding, the half log for a hide and glass caging with a lamp on top. Why is my blood so mean? <laughs> Absolutely. So. Well, it feels like you're exactly. baking them and you're baking them. Stop. You know, yep, yep. jerky. I think I stopped you. Oh, goodness. (laughs) That's a terrible vision. (laughs) Um, Okay. What about regulating and monitoring the temps? How do we, how do we do that? Well, Uh, for me, I use the, um, the Herbstat thermostat is my main source. And then I have a Govi Wi-Fi digital temperature and uh, humidity gauges in several spaces around my space. This is something where you need layers. So you need mm-hmm. heat controllers. Any Anytime you have a heating source, that heat source needs to be controlled. So you have, whether it is an ultratherm heat mat under a PVC enclosure, or if it is, you know, heat tape on an ARS rack, whatever you are using must be controlled. I love Herbstat thermostats. I get all of mine from Zach Green, Zach Green Reptiles. He is... Me too. <laughs> Zach? He is very supportive, great with answering questions, um... I, I really like the Herbstat units. I have all the Wi-Fi units and, and have really enjoyed using those. Um, so that's your baseline for heat control within the enclosures. I have a room thermostat that basically powers the heat to the entire room. Um, I do use the the Govi sensors around the room just for a quick glance when I'm working in there. I use mm. the sensor push uh, Wi-Fi connected gateway that will send alerts and text directly to my phone and to my email if things get under or over a certain set of parameters that I like to monitor. Um, and then the number one tool that I'm in there using is my temp gun, you know, go in and, and spot check all of your temperatures. And, and that should just be a regular part of your husband routine. You can look at gauges all day long, but are you calibrating? Are you going in and shooting what that snake is actually sitting at or setting on? And are you making sure that your temperatures are still within the expected range? Because it's really easy to rely on technology. And if you're like, hey, this is a safeguard and it's going to be doing exactly what I need it to be doing, but we need to be double-checking and, and spot-checking and making sure that those gauges are accurate and that there aren't any hot spots or cool spots that we might not have anticipated or expected. And that's something that I need to be better at for sure um, with monitoring because I do rely on the thermostat to tell me what the gauge is and as well as the animal's behavior. So it's not like I'm doing it totally blind, but in a sense, that's basically blind. So it's just like with computer data, you got to back up your backup. You use that rule of threes. You've got your temp gun, you have your thermostat, and then you have your, your temperature gauges throughout the room. And I think if you're using kind of, again, that rule of three, back up your backup, make sure you're mm-hmm. double checking what everything says it should be. Um, that's a pretty good rule of thumb. I'm almost there. I'm at two. I, I can easily do three. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to um, watering. Uh, how big of a bowl? How often do you change the water? How, how do we, how do we go with fresh water for these animals? Blood pythons drink a lot of water. They like fresh water. They can be persnickety about water, and so I think water changes, you know, every other day are sometimes mm-hmm. necessary depending on a how dry or or wet your conditions are, whether or not you have hard water. 
what are your snakes telling you? You know, are they, do you actively see them drinking? Is your water getting stale? Is it getting a film on it? Those are things that you should never see when you're looking in a water bowl. Um, the size of the water container that I like to use, it really just depends on the size of the animal. So hatchlings get a four ounce deli cup. I do use disposable water bowls just because it makes maintenance easier. And I don't like scrubbing water dishes. You know, there are only so many hours a week and I hate standing at sink doing dishes. <laughs> so I'm going to, understand. I will use disposable water bowls and, and recycle where I can. And I, I'm just, yeah, life's too short to, to scrub. So uh, four ounce deli cups for things in the V18 rack. Um, I use basically 12 ounce for anything in the 5540 racks. And then when they go to a, a boa tub, I'm using the 96 ounce, um, like big nine inch plastic containers. And those sometimes I will sit in like a, a dish that has the bottom cut out or something like that, just to keep them from flipping it over because big blood pythons will get on top of that, you know, that little uh, nine inch deli and, and flip it right over and dump water everywhere. But I think, I think looking to change water minimum of every couple of days, if not every other day is a really good habit to get into. And then just know what's in your water. You know, if you've never had your local water tested, have it tested, find out if you have hard water or soft water, if you're getting mineral buildup, know how to deal with that. And if you need to go to like a bottled water or purified water situation, be willing to do so. Yeah, I think if you're if you have hard water, I know some people that have actually put um, a certain system onto their house that will make it to where it softens the water and only in the house they have soft water. So that's it's pricey, but, but <laughs> depending upon you know the collection size and whatnot, that could be something to look into. Absolutely. For that. And then what's your backup water source? You know, it, say you have a power outage and your water is only available via an electric pump, well, then how are you getting water to your animals? So always kind of have your, your backup plan or your contingency plan, you know, even if it's just five or 10 gallons of water that you have stashed up in the corner with jugs and, and you rotate them out and replace those jugs every so often and, and use those elsewhere. I think it never hurts to have a, a backup plan. Yet another thing I'm going to note down, cause I do not have backup water. That is for sure. Um, all right. Um, with water bowls, I have a cheap, well, a cheap, good bowl. I think it's actually a livestock bowl that I use. And I think it is between nine and 12 inches, uh, bowl. It's from horse.com and it is their, their plastic ones. It's not the rubber ones. It's the plastic ones. It's a holds a gallon, I believe of water. And I have not had an adult blood Python dump that. Nice. So yeah. And it's only like, it's huge. And even some of my sub adults can get in there and soak if they care to. And it's only about, I want to say between five and $6 for a huge bowl. So that is the most cost effective I have found. Um, they're sturdy, they don't dump and they're easy to clean. Uh, so that is my recommendation to big water bowls instead of getting one of those huge ceramic ones, which will cost you a lot of money, especially from a pet store. Guaranteed you'll drop them at some point because I used to use them. I can't see how many I broke. Are they chip or something? so annoying right so you go to fill it that the ceramic bowl a big one oh, plus heavy. water is just heavy yeah. why am i putting a 20 pound brick in this tub that i now have to you know pull down from over my head so i'm short and i a lot of my, my snakes <laughs> that are up in their top tubs those are over my head and so it's all right let's put yeah, all snakes like, up no. there friendly snakes up there right. <laughs> i don't always do right i'll come out uh, yeah like, I learned like, why do you have that. this really angry blood python four inches above the top of your head I did that once and she got really angry when I was pulling her out. This is Medusa, which some of you guys know. This is a really long time ago when I first got Medusa and we did not have an understanding. And I put her on top and I don't know why. I don't know what my logic was at the time, but I went to put her in or take her out. And she launched out and did a very large drop and scared me half to death and then was more mad at me. So I highly do not recommend putting them at the very top nor the very bottom because you hover over them too much. And that makes yeah. them nervous as well. You want them at so, shin height or knee height. Exactly. Yeah. I, I remember yeah. years and years ago, having a, a large blood that literally grabbed the side of my head in a feeding response. Oh, oh Lord. Lord. He's all tangled up in my hair and I'm like trying to deal with this massive snake that's attached <laughs> to my head. And I'm like, this really sucks. So we're going to reconsider where we put these in the rack going forward. So, I can't even imagine. Moments like that, and then you have make you consider your life choices for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! I'm literally trying to imagine. I'm like the body must have been like flopping all around it trying to get really a hold fun, of you, too. you know. And it's like, oh my yeah. god. <laughs> 
All right. So that is water for you. I think that really takes care of water. Um, some animals like to soak and some don't. Well, let, yeah. let me just reiterate, though, you know, taking care of water. Um, sometimes with fresh hatchlings, we'll see they get derpy about their water. They don't necessarily know where to go look for it. And so I think, you know, guiding them to the water cup when you first set them up is always a good idea. And then just make sure that your snakes have very, very clean, very fresh water frequently. Like I, I don't think I can state enough how often blood pythons drink and to what extent they do. And keeping them well hydrated is just essential to their yeah, overall it helps health. With shedding, being able to pass and filter all their food and liquid and everything. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And even with medications, there are certain medications that are, um, oh, I'm missing the word. Uh, I don't want to say filter because that's not the correct, but they go through the liver or the kidneys and they need ample hydration for mm -hmm. that too. So, yep, exactly. Any um, damage. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I agree. So maybe the, the weekly water change may not be the route for you if that's what you're currently doing. I don't, I don't think the weekly water change is, is a good way to go with blood pythons. I think, you know, three times a week is probably more realistic, especially depending on, again, if you live in, like, we have hard water, we have a well and then and we have, um, you know, other systems that we use, but it's, if there's any kind of, if like you run your finger around the inside of a water bowl, you feel any kind of any texture or anything that isn't just squeaky clean, it is time to change that water. And you just part of a really good husbandry routine is do it often keep it fresh and keep it frequent. And I, I just think that, that is essential. We have some people that say put like copper in the bowl and that helps with bacterial. That's not going to be necessary if you're doing your water changes yeah. enough. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah. I just, uh, that, that feels like too much work. I'd rather just change it out and yeah. keep it clean. Keep it simple, stupid, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's move on to humidity. Um, when we first, again, got bloods back in the 80s and 90s, we thought that we had to keep them basically wet. Humidity at 100% and wet. Um, what actually should we be keeping them at and what's ideal for them? Oh, man. You know, again, this is situational because, for example, we're in Iowa um, this time of year. It's very dry. If I did not humidify the snake room, it would easily drop down to 20 or 30%, which is outrageously uncomfortable and, and would create respiratory irritation. Um, conversely, 70 to 80%, which is, I know what a lot of people have shot for in the past, um, you end up with airflow or air quality issues. And pardon mm -hmm. me. Sorry, I had to clear my throat. Um, you end up ending up with uh, stagnant air. You get funk and mold and all sorts of bacterial overgrowth because you're basically creating this stagnant environment. So if you have good ventilation, if you have good airflow, you know, 60 to 70%, absolutely. I'll bump it up to 75, even to 80% when the snake is shedding, but I'm in there checking daily and spraying. Um, on average, you know, I have our room calibrated to, to 50 to 60% humidity. And I, and then that way I can go into individual tubs and, and spray and really say, all right, what does this animal need? Are they sitting too wet? Are they sitting too dry? Do I need to let this dry out a little bit? Do I need to swap out substrate or Conversely, are they going into a shed cycle? Are they, you know, showing me that they want a little bit more humidity? Are they fully hydrated? Is this something that needs to be addressed via hydration and not just spraying an enclosure? And so I think 50 to 60% is a good baseline. And then you mm -hmm. can adjust either way from there as necessary. Now, do you keep um, sensors in each of the cages inside? Because I've noticed that even if my room is 40 let's say with the water bowl that I have inside the actual tub itself is going to be around 60 ish. Mm -hmm. I, I don't use sensors in the enclosures. I use mm -hmm. them in the room. Um, occasionally I will go pop a sensor in a tub, you know, for a day and just say, all right, what are the readings show me? And that's using the, the sensor push system. But really I think what's going to show you is the quality of the overall snake skin. You know, are they, are they dimpled? Are they looking sleek and glossy without dimpled scales? Are they shedding well? If you're getting one piece sheds, that's a really good indicator. Um, but I, I want to see what the overall condition and quality of that snake skin is. Are their eyes bright and clear? Are they showing, you know, any kind of sinking in or dimpling around their head that would indicate any sort of dehydration? Is their skin very supple? Is it, you know, shiny and brilliant or does it look dull? Does it look dimpled? Does it look dry? Um, I, I think condition is far more 
important a guide than looking at numbers on a gauge. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, now, this is more like a personal question here. I have some animals that have been through a, either a really bad shed or a season where they were too dehydrated. And it seems like their scales are dimpled forever. Like no matter how much I hydrate them at this point, you know, soak them and everything, it's not going back to that smooth and glossy scale. Is that something that you notice or is that something that I have an issue that I still need to keep working on? I think that's something, you know, if you want to introduce maybe weekly soaks at that point, I think that is a correctable condition, but it's something that, okay. that is correctable long-term. It's not something that's going to resolve in a shed or two. It's something that's going to resolve in like a year or two, depending on the extent to which that snake was exposed to suboptimal conditions. Right. Yeah, because I'm noticing like you, a lot of animals, you know, they get a wound or something and in a shed or two, it's gone. But with this dimpling thing, it does not really go away very quickly at no, all. No, it doesn't. No. And, and again, the, the key there is is hydration. Um, soaking can really kind of help offset that, you know, but, but I mean, you're getting into, into frequent soaks. And, and I mean, that's a heavy lift with some of these snakes. You know, you're filling up this big tub, you're regulating the water, and you're leaving them in there overnight. And you're doing that weekly. Um, and, and again, it's all for kind of a, a long-term correction that you're going to see. And, and so, so much with these snakes is about having a really good long game and being willing to wait and put the time in and do the work and, and see the results. But it's, it's not something that's going to correct overnight. Absolutely. Um, yes. And that reminded me of something I'll just show you later, but that'll be later. Um, okay. So with humidity and I want to kind of talk about airflow when we, when we talk about humidity here. So I have a fan, one fan, an overhead fan in my room. I frankly think I need to add more, but that's a whole different, well, not a whole different topic, but a different little offshoot of my brain. Um, and then some tubs, I also put extra air holes in and I put them maybe about two to three inches above the ground space. Um, and that way, if they flood, you know, I'm not getting like urine pouring out of my tubs because that's gross. Um, so I do that. Do you do that with some of your tubs, all your tubs, none of your tubs? Like how do you, um, make sure that they're getting uh, cross ventilation inside each tub? So we use, uh, fans throughout the room, not just one fan. And then there are these little round vents that I have found that we can, uh, cut holes into the tubs and oh, yeah. we'll go the vents in and do some, you know, low in the front or high in the back or vice versa. And then our fans in the room will, will take care of the rest. You're talking about like there may be like two to three inches across. People use them when they build their cages. Yeah, it's like a it's like a little like a little louvered round circular vent, and and those pop really well. The only thing you just have to make sure you get the right kind that have like tabs in the back that would fold back, and that you're you know you essentially have kind of this flat vent that you can put in and, and silicone into place so that snakes aren't tearing their yeah. faces up on them. But I, I think that actually, you know, ventilating the tubs and then making sure that the top of the rack, depending on what kind of rack you're using, um, is also providing sufficient airflow is, is really important. I also think that getting in and opening up tubs every day, you know, making sure that, that you're not, not checking snakes on a regular basis is essential to just opening it up, making sure you're getting that air exchange, have fans in your room, make sure everything smells fresh and clean and use air filters too if you need to. If you have a bunch of animals in one place, it does not hurt to go in and... I think just to add that extra layer of, of protection and health by filtering the air and, and using a good air purifier. And there's some good ones out there too. They're kind of pricey, but if you have a whole room of animals, it's worth the price. It's, it's yeah, an investment. Absolutely. Exactly. It's, it's an investment into their overall health and, and husbandry. And, uh, and never then a bad another, idea. what you said with opening up each tub, if with me, with my Christmas tree tubs right now, right now they're stacked on top of each other and that's a pain in the butt which comes back to ease and simplicity. If you set up your animals, if you have more than, let's say five, let's say the ease of getting in and out of the tubs makes all of this just so much more streamlined and you're more willing to go into your snake room and just do a quick check because it will be a quick check. It's not going to take forever to unstack everyone, open the tub, check them, clean them, you know, all that. It's, it's much quicker. So and doing those daily check-ins, that's a great way to build rapport with your snakes and make sure that you, you know, that they see you, you are part of their active environment every day. Even if you're just popping up a, a hide and reaching in and touching the snake, 
when I, when I have people ask me, you know, how do you mm-hmm. tame them or how do you make them friendly? I'm not in there messing with them all the time. I just check in and touch them and say hi and keep going. And I don't think it's, you know, long, crazy handling sessions. I don't think that's always the best way to approach these animals. But if you get in that routine of checking, observing, seeing what they're doing, understanding what is kind of that snake's personality and what their behavior is, you're going to learn so much about that animal and then have all of these other husbandry benefits, you know, the air exchange, knowing when you need to change that water, seeing if there's anything porky or, or out of place in their behavior yeah. for that day. It, it becomes kind of this layered routine of, of data that you're starting to absorb and understand about that animal. And, and it, there's nothing in, there's not a tool, there's not a book, there's not a YouTube video, there's nothing you can watch or read or otherwise absorb that is going to give you as much information as going in and interacting with your animals on a daily basis to that extent and just observing who they are and what they do. And I'll add to that with, um, I have an animal right now that I am now calling super sport, but her old name was spawn of Satan, <laughs> but, um, I actually have it now where I can touch her and I'm going to show a video. I'm going to put together a video of what she was. And I had Ryan actually videotape me handling her now and how she is now. And what I do is I just, when I'm in my room cleaning, she is the worst snake I have by far. She is so scared and hates the world, open mouth, whatever she hits, she'll bite basically is what she does. Um, and spraying musk and all that. She's just a mess, but I'll open up her tub while I'm working around her, not touch her, not even look her way, but I'll just open up the tub so she can see me and watch me and know that I'm not there to hurt her. And I'm not there to mess with her. I'm just there. So she gets used to my presence. Um, and that helps with taming them out too. Uh, and, and, I feel like we're now bonding more with the snake. And part of the reason I like this species so much is because once you understand them and they get you as well, that bond like just doesn't get broken. Like that's there. Once you gain their trust, it's, it's there. Um, and that, that's honestly what I love about these snakes so much because some of them are pain, but once you get that trust, they're loyal. <laughs> yes. I mean, don't get me wrong. You can, you can lose it too. Yes. You know, and that's where I think when, when you have to go in and say you have to medicate a snake and you're having to restrain it or anything like that, it can really put a dent in that relationship. Um, and it, that's just something we have to be aware of is, you know, obviously the snake's concept of quote unquote relationship is way different than ours, but it, there's still that connection. There's still that rapport that we either build or we tear down. And every interaction that we have, whether it's with a snake, whether it's with another person, it's either promoting or detracting from that relationship. And how are we creating something positive and healthy for that animal or for that other being that we interact with? And and that's just, I think, a perspective that we can't lose sight of, especially in this crazy, you know, physically disconnected age that we're in with all the the separation and COVID and everything else. And I've also learned don't handle more challenging animals when you're frustrated because that just creates a, and and I've done it and (laughs) you know, you're cursing at them and you're not, you're not understanding to why they're behaving that way when you're in a frustrated or, you know, otherwise not understanding mental atmosphere. (laughs) You know, it's funny that you say that because I think years ago um, when I lived in New Hampshire and I, I, there was, I, did a lot of stuff with horses back at the time and I uh, was taking riding lessons from, from just a really fantastic instructor. And the horse that I was riding that day was very, very sensitive. And I, I just had a lot going on in my head and hadn't sorted out where I was, I think mentally and emotionally that day. And we were working in the indoor arena and I rode the horse into the wall <laughs> because I was getting so frustrated. And, and, and my instructor looked at me, she goes, you know, horses don't usually walk into walls. What's going on with you today? And, and I think that that, you know, there's a parallel there when we go out and we work with these snakes, if we are not present, if we are not actively engaged in that interaction with the snake, are we really giving them our best? Are we learning and growing as a keeper when we are distracted and we're not paying attention and we're not just fully immersed in that moment with that animal? And so there's a lot to be said, A, for not working with them when we're frustrated, uh, like you said, but also B, being aware of when we've built relationships with these snakes, when when we've established a rapport with these animals and suddenly they are not acting or responding in a way that we would normally anticipate is there something going on with them or is there something going on with us that, that we haven't either admitted to or picked up on yet? And I think that, that that's something that we can't deny in any of our interactions with, with animals, other people, 
any, any of it. And, uh, there's a, there's a lot to be said for emotional intelligence when we, when we work with animals and they will often reveal things to us and about us that, that we had otherwise missed. Right, you're not even, not even aware that you have an aura around you, but the animals know. <laughs> right. Or, or that you're giving off some kind of tension or, or something to which they will react. And, uh, they definitely help us get to know ourselves better. Absolutely. There's no denying that. If, if we're willing to pay attention and listen. And yeah, there's that big if right call there. <laughs> Yes. But, but to that, you know, extent and effect, we also have to be receptive and say, you know, hey, when a snake calls you out on your BS behavior, are you going to say, okay, snake, you were right? And and do the deep work and, and, you know, acknowledge that, hey, yes, I had something going on that day and I really had no business handling you the way that I did. Um yeah, there's animals tell us a lot about ourselves if we're willing to be humble enough to That's listen. why so many there's so many like animal therapy like sessions and, and groups. I know, right? Oh my god. Yes. <laughs> All right. So before we get too too <laughs> off it's <laughs> too existential, yes. I know. We, that's a great <laughs> tangent though. Great. <laughs> That's another topic entirely. <laughs> we'll get into that maybe next year with the podcast. I don't know. <laughs> I realized how stuffy I was. I woke up super congested this morning. I was like, oh, I hope I didn't sound like crap. I'm no, you sure. do not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Let's, let's end this with, uh, with hides and then some final thoughts. So what do you use yeah, for, for, for hides sure. as, well, I know what you use for babies because now I use that too. Um, but through their, their life cycle, what are you using as hides for these animals? I like reptile basics makes these, they, carry these black plastic hides that I think are really great because they're easy to clean and easy to sanitize. You know, if you need to reuse them for different sizes and different enclosures, heck, maybe <laughs> down the, down the road. Um, but the snakes use them and that's just it. You know, like I'll put this deep layer of, of cocoa husk bedding in with all of my snakes and they'll be burrowed under the cocoa husk under that's their so hide. Funny. <laughs> and so they will use the hides. I'll also use like layers of paper if they want to sit under the paper, under the cocoa husk. Uh, sometimes I'll throw a slab of pork bark in you know, it just kind of depends on, on the snake. Um, some of the snakes that I'll have in like the 55, 40 racks, you know, when they get a little bigger and chunkier and, and the hide won't necessarily sit there, that's a great time to use paper over the coca husk or like a slab of cork bark because it, it's more, uh, I guess, ergonomic for the enclosure cause it's a longer, narrow mm-hmm. tub and, uh, and it kind of makes everything fit a little bit better before they're ready to graduate up to the next, the next enclosure. But I love hides. The snakes love them. They use them. Um, I, I know a lot of people don't offer their blood python hides, but I think use them and, and let the snake tell you whether or not they, they want it or, or don't. Yeah. I use, um, for my adults, I use big, I use the same hides as you do for juveniles and smaller ones. And for the adults, I use a Rubbermaid tub that I cut a hole in and, and that fits my big, uh, females, uh, as, as well as males. I'll use that for them too. Um, absolutely. We have a bunch of those around here. I can't tell you how many. Right. Rubbermaid coats are stacked up in my garage with, with and it's a real good, <laughs> me too. It's a real good indicator uh, if they've soiled their mm-hmm. their cage because most of the time they're in their hide and if they pee in there they're not going to be in their hide so you already know if if you see them out you know you got clean up. Yes, absolutely. Or it's just like when you give a, a gravid female a nest mm-hmm. box and she's like not in the nest box, she's under it. It's like great, she's laying eggs. Yes, I she's not in the. Nest if box. I have females that yeah. I have paired up, I have to take the lids off of the tubs because they'll squeeze themselves yes. on top, which is also a sign that maybe they took is if they start going up there, I'm like, okay, great. Um, and yes, I have vision boa racks that are tweaked now because the female went under the tub and squ- like squashed herself where I could not get to her because she made that tub so tight and messed up my whole entire thing. Absolutely. You can't get to be human. <laughs> I, I- Earn your efforts to give me a favorable place to lay right. my eggs. I, I am going to cram them in the worst possible place. In the <laughs> exactly. Yes, 100%. Yes, they, they demonstrate their disdain and very creative. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, man. <laughs> anyway, uh, okay. So, do you have any further thoughts on hides? I I just use them. I know a lot of people don't, and, and I get that. Um, actually, I don't get that. Give your snake a hide <laughs> and and let them let them tell you and show you what they want. And if they don't want one, then great. Don't use it. You know, give them a deep substrate, let them burrow in whatever, but give them options because when we approach these snakes with a blanket of, you know, this blanket idea of yes, they do want this or no, they don't want that. They don't show us who they are individually. I have some snakes that will never sit in a hide box and I have some snakes that will always sit in a hide box, but it, if I'm not giving them the option to use one, I would never know. That's truth. All right. Do you have any final thoughts on husbandry in general? 
be willing to learn, be willing to talk to other keepers, find out what's working, have a realistic approach to what your setup is, uh, be a sponge and, and don't assume that just because one thing works for one keeper in one scenario, it's going to be, you know, instantly dialed in and easy to reproduce in something halfway across the country with different humidity and a different type of room and a different type of heat. I mean, just be flexible, be adaptable. And I, and I think that that's the biggest thing that, that we can always keep in mind when it comes to husbandry is that nobody has ever finished learning. And the day that we think we know it all is the day that we stop being teachable. And, and that's just a really crappy way to go through life. Absolutely. Oh, there's my cat again. <laughs> all right. <laughs> distracting little munchkin. Okay. All right. So, um, my last final questions I like to ask is if you could give advice to a new keeper, what would it be? Get a mentor. And you have a wonderful Get a mentor. Mentor program with the blood Python group. Just a little plug there. I do. Yeah, absolutely. We have a bunch of wonderful keepers there that are willing to help others, but it's be teachable, be willing to fail, be failure is not fatal failure failure to learn from from failure is fatal um never nobody knows at all and don't ever get stuck into that mindset that, that there's not room to grow or, or be willing to grow because a being able to independently research and find good sources of information and not just rely on you know the top three hits that you get on google or the top three things that you see on youtube but apply critical thinking say, does this make sense? Does this, you know, really fit what I, what I understand of this animal? And if not, why do I have trusted sources that I can go to for information that'll help either guide me or, or correct me? Um, if, if yes, great. If not, go find them. Um, but leave the ego at the door and, and just be a sponge, be willing to learn because people and animals will, will teach us so much if, if we can suspend the ego and just say, you know, this, this entire life is, is a journey and it's a path and, and what we, what we add to it and what we pick up along the way um, hopefully will turn into something worthwhile to leave behind and, and pay forward to others. But if we go in with this mindset that we know it all or, or that I can read it all in, in three lines on a care sheet or two minutes in a YouTube video, then neither you or your snakes will ultimately do well. Yep. And being, being flexible is key. Yeah. Be flexible, be willing, be, be courageous, be, you know, adventurous in your, in your methods and understanding and, and willingness to try. Well, I love it. What a great conversation, Kara. Thank you so much. Um, if, if anyone wants to get a hold of you or speak to you further about this or has any questions, how can they reach you? Um, well, our website, bloodpythons.com, pretty easy to find. Um, and we have uh, Instagram, which is blood pythons. We have a Facebook page, which is the blood cell, um, or through the website. And uh, you can always hit me up one of those ways. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And uh, for everyone listening, Kara is amazing. She happens to be my mentor as well. So awesome person. Uh, yeah. So thank you so much. And we will catch you all next month with the next episode, which I'm hoping to be about genetics, genetics 101, and how that applies to blood pythons and short tails. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. Thanks everyone for listening. Please feel free to give me a follow on Facebook and Instagram at Bloods by Design. Tag me in your blood python photos at Bloods by Design, hashtag strictly shorties, so I can share all the awesome animals you listeners have. And if you have any questions, people you want to hear from, or topics to discuss, you can email those to bloodsbydesign at gmail.com. And of course, this podcast is supported by the NPR Network. If you want to get a hold of any of the guys at the NPR Network, you can email them at info at MoreliaPythonRadio.com. You can follow them on all the socials and, of course, subscribe to the NPR Network YouTube channel. They have a Patreon where you can support all the NPR podcasts, just like this one, as well as merch. And all of that can be found on their website, MoreliaPythonRadio.com. Thank you everyone for listening. We'll catch you next month for more Strictly Shorties.